Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to with me, Ryan McCoslin. Ryan is a CEO and founder at Tailwater Dental. He is an adjunct professor at Vanderbilt University here in Nashville, and he writes publicly online at ryanmccoslin.com. He lives in Nashville, my backyard, with his wife and three young children. And Ryan is somebody that I've known for a long time, so I'm excited to have him on here and we can chat a little bit. And you've become quite the blogger. I've been tracking a lot of your posts. That was the reason that I reached out. Before we get into one particular post that you did, I think is just terrific. What got you into writing originally? Brian, it's good to be here. And I've been writing for myself for over a decade. It was really just an exercise to help me organize my thoughts and, 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 and complicated ideas that I'd encountered in conversations or lectures or whatever. And I didn't have the courage to start sharing it publicly until COVID. What a weird time that was. And I guess I felt like I wanted a new way to connect with the people that I cared about. And so it started just with a few online posts, but I invited my mom and my wife and my brother to, to read them and started, uh, you know, just putting something up every week. And over time, you know, they shared those with the people they cared about and, and built a little bit of an audience. And for the last, I guess, almost two and a half years now, I've been sharing at least one post a week. And I found, Brian, that it's a little like, so, so writing online publicly is, is kind of like hosting a dinner at your house because I have these ideas that, that I think I've thought through, but it's only when I have to write, the, write about them in a way that I know other people will read them that, that I have to actually organize them <laughs> and clean them up. 
And so it keeps me honest, I think. If, if, if I'm thinking through something, it helps to hold myself accountable for communicating these thoughts in a way that's accessible to others. Yeah, I love it. And similar to you, I started podcasting during COVID because I had time on my hands and felt disconnected. You and I are both big networkers. And when that was taken away, I think we had to find another avenue to communicate with people and connect with people. And here we are. So let's get right into it. I mean, this post that you did, the 31 ideas that changed my life, this is terrific. And I love aphorisms. I love really brief, succinct thoughts that you can expound upon if you want to, but you can take them as they are. So let's just start going through some of these and and we'll link the blog to the show notes and I encourage people to check it out. But let's start at the very top, circle of influence versus circle of concern. Sure. I'll just riff on this for, for a minute. But the idea behind the circle of influence versus circle of concern is that we need to spend as much time as possible on on things that we can actually influence. And this isn't an idea that I came up with on my own, Brian. So many of these ideas I've adopted or 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 embraced have come from people much more accomplished and smarter than me. But this one came from Stephen Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And in that book, he talks about how the most effective people spend their time energy, um, and effort, things they can actually influence. So just some examples. I can influence what I read, what I buy, what I eat, what I teach my children, who I spend my time with and where I live, how I react to conflict, my thoughts and words, when I go to sleep and wake up, where I work, who I hire, when I pray, if I pray, these kinds of things. You know, there are other things, though, that, that I certainly care about, I'm concerned about, that I can't influence. I would like the Vanderbilt basketball program to, to make it to a final four. And I could read everything I could about the new recruits and next year's non-conference schedule, but I really wouldn't make any impact on whether we'd have any success as a program because I'm not involved with the Vanderbilt basketball program. So to spend my time on that wouldn't be very effective. And then the last thing that Covey says about this, Brian, that I want to mention is, is what ends up being interesting is as we focus on things we can influence, our circle of influence expands. So there could be a day if I get all the stuff right that's in my circle, maybe I could influence the Vandy basketball program. Maybe I'll have enough influence in Nashville and in the Vanderbilt community to actually recruit, help recruit somebody who could be a game changer for the program. But I'm not there yet, man. So I'm not spending my time there. Yeah, I love that. And to go to your initial kind of caveat before we got into this, the more and more people that I talk to who are in the investment space for financial services curation, given just the avalanche and deluge of, of media and information we we are hit over the head with every day, then curation is the key. So even though these aren't your ideas necessarily, just being able to have them in one place is really helpful because it's overwhelming, I think, for all of us. The Eisenhower matrix. Are you familiar with this one, Brian? Were you before? You I'd never, I had never heard of it before, no. Okay. So the Eisenhower matrix is named for our 34th American president. And Eisenhower was, well, what many presidential historians would describe as one of the most effective and impactful presidents in history. I mean, he created NASA. He ended the Korean War. He expanded Social Security, helped end McCarthyism. He signed the Civil Rights Act in 1957 and integrated schools in Arkansas. He built the interstate highway system. His two terms saw economic growth and prosperity. And, oh, by the way, before he was president as Supreme Allied Commander of Europe in World War II, he led the D-Day invasion of Normandy and liberated Europe from Nazi control. 
right? So that kind of leadership doesn't happen without preparation, planning, and values clarification. And he used a matrix of his own design to figure out where to spend his time. He organized it, and I know you'll link to this, but if you can imagine four quadrants, in the top left quadrant, quadrant one, we have things that are urgent and important. In the top right quadrant, we have things that are not urgent but important. Bottom left, we have things that are not important and not urgent, excuse me, not important and urgent. In the bottom right, we have things that are not important and not urgent. So anyway, I guess the, the, the point here is that Eisenhower said that we need to spend as much time as possible in the top right quadrant on things that are important but not urgent. That would include probably um, exercise, maintaining a healthy diet, things that if we don't do them today aren't going to matter probably in the short run, but they will we'll matter a lot in the long run. That also includes things like nurturing relationships with people who are important to you, whether that's you know personal or professionally. It includes things like, I don't know, writing once a week like I have, and that's been really hard to maintain. But I can tell you that it's borne fruit over the last few years in ways uh, that I didn't predict. Um, and, and it sometimes was hard to pull those thoughts together on a weekly basis. But I can tell you that in retrospect, it was worth all that effort because of the new relationships I've established and opportunities to have good conversations just like the one we're having today. And I think it, in today, more important than ever, given just this constant need for immediate satisfaction that we have in our culture and this you know, overwhelming, apparently, desire for instantaneous positive feedback. I really like that important but not urgent. And also just, I think, the exercise of going through that process of sifting through all of these things in your life and putting them into buckets is really helpful. And that leads directly into the third one, which is Parkinson's Law, which I am familiar with. And this is something I think about a lot. And, you know, the New York Times has written about this pretty extensively, the efficiency trap, right? Where we, we thought technology was going to save us from a lot of this work and would allow us to embrace more free time, more time outside of work. When in reality, technology just allowed us to consume and produce more work than we could have before. And you're never really going to get to inbox zero because all it does is just allow you more time to produce more work product. And so this is something that I've thought about a lot in regards to technology and, and modern workforce or modern working life. I agree with all of that, Brian. It's so easy to get caught up in the thick of thin things. And most of the content that we consume is designed to be temporal and ephemeral. The average timeline you know, for Facebook I mean, is, is, is stuff that was written in the last five days. That's all that you see on your timeline. On Instagram, it's, it's, it's very similar. It's more like three days. On Snapchat, it's real time, right? So these platforms that we now use for consumption don't have any content that, 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 that's meant to uh, survive for months, years, or even decades. And I think that's part of that. We're encouraged, incentivized to produce things that are timely, but not timeless. When it comes to Parkinson's law... I think the idea is, is, is just, you know, work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. But the inverse of that I know is also true, which is to say work contracts to fill the time available for completion. 
just one anecdote. You may have heard this before, but during a meeting, meeting in 2018, Elon Musk asked his leadership team how long it would take to remove staff cars from the SpaceX company parking lot. So we could start another project, which is digging the first test hole for the boring company tunnel. And they said two weeks. And Musk said, well, guys, let's just get started today and see what's the biggest hole we can dig between now and Sunday afternoon, running 24 hours a day. And the cars were gone and there was a hole in the ground in less than three hours. My takeaway from that story is just that we, if, we, if we are prioritizing the right things, if we decide something's important, then, then just by having a laser focus, we can get the important stuff done. And especially in today's environment where, and I talk to my children about this as they consume media more and more as they're getting older, that it, it just seems like we're in a attention-seeking, distraction-oriented economy where the marketers and advertisers are monetizing your time. And so that leads me to the conclusion that you need to be more guarded with your time more than ever, because there's so many different <laughs> different. Uh, sphere is trying to suck it out uh, from your everyday life. The, the, the human brain did not evolve to, to care about every single thing that affects every person all over the globe. It's a really complicated time to be able to process all the information that's available to us. Which, which leads me, and we're skipping around here a little bit, but it's a perfect segue into your low information diet, which is one that I've heard from a number of guests, actually. And, and interestingly, I've heard it from a lot of my investing-oriented guests, hedge fund people or, or traders, uh, people who are really in the financial markets, they have now completely eschewed all financial media, if not all media in general. And this is something that aligns with what you've discovered yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm not the only one who embraced this during, uh, I guess it was two presidential cycles ago when, when Trump was running against Clinton. And it was just such a crazy time in the media. And I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't keep up and I didn't care to keep up. And I didn't be, feel happier or healthier when I paid attention. And that doesn't mean that I didn't, that I gave up on democracy or the issues that really matter. Um, I still care very much about those things. But check this out. Someone told me that, that you should try reading a newspaper from a year ago or even a month ago and figure out which of those stories are still relevant or matter. And almost none of them do. And almost none of them do. It sheds light on this, I guess, realization that when we adopt a low information diet, which is to say we're not consuming media on a daily basis, um, we can focus the ideas and the, and the tasks and the people that, that, that really do matter. So we can stop focusing or getting caught up in the thick of thin things and spend on energy on those things that will really matter 10 years from now. Which leads me to this law of averages, which is a, a term that I've heard many times that we are the average of the five people we associate with the most. And it feels like this low information diet and then who you also with Eisenhower matrix kind of leads to this concept, right? Of being really thoughtful and judicious about the people we spend time with. And again, to go back to a social media construct, it has often felt to me as I've grown my LinkedIn network and our uh, email network, I feel increasingly disconnected with people. Mm. <laughs> and <laughs> so, you know, are you a true believer in this average of the five people? And if so, how do you think about the folks that you surround yourself with and have had you made some changes there? 
after adopting the strategy? I wouldn't say that I'm a, a true believer in this idea that we are the average of the five people we spend our most time with. It's, I think the title or the idea is meant to be provocative and, and, and force us to, to think about how we're influenced by the people we choose to spend our time with. But I can tell you that, that, that I know it's human nature to start adopting the behaviors and the ideas of the people that, 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 that we do see on a daily basis. Even if we guard against that, it's inevitable that, that just their worldview creeps into ours. So that to the extent that we can control it, I think, I mean, that's always a positive thing just to be mindful of, of who it is that, that we're having lunch with or choosing to work with. You know, do you, I mean, if, if you, an audience who listens to podcasts, then almost all of them may have at least heard of and probably be familiar with Naval Ravikant, who, who spent some time talking about this. And Naval... Um, we can pick up earlier, but it, it does trigger to me in Naval's, you know, I don't know if you've heard his consolidated how to be wealthy podcast right? He put together have, all yeah. of, yeah, it's unbelievable. I listened to it once a quarter just to kind of reset my mind on spending time on certain things or not spending time on certain things. And it's hugely powerful in my opinion. So I love it. I mean, I mean, it's hard for me to, I haven't read everything he's written or posted, so I can't say I agree with all of it, but I agree with most of it. I think he has a unique insight into how to approach this sort of modern um, professional path that, that, that is new to, 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 to humanity in so many ways because we have options that are available to us professionally that you know previous generations never even thought of. And, and I remember he said that he doesn't do business, Brian, with anyone for three days that he can't see himself working with for three decades. And I think that's a powerful way of looking at partnerships not just with people who you know you start businesses with necessarily, but even with vendors or with somebody you hire to run payroll. Because if you're taking the long view on those relationships, you're going to make better choices and you're going to uh, maybe take a little bit longer to make decisions, but make better decisions. And I also reflected on this, it's number four for you on your list, in terms of what I've realized is being a member of certain affinity networks, like I'd recently joined YPO, and it's been an incredible experience and journey, mostly because to your point that you made earlier, it makes you realize that there is a next level to whatever you've been working on and that you get impacted by the people that you engage with, right? And when you're engaging with, and again, this is a capital structure, but like super successful people that have done incredible things, you realize, Man, I need. I, there's a lot more I can go here, right? I thought there was a glass ceiling that I can really push through, and the way that they put it in YPO world is, you know, I want to be the least motivated person in the room. Uh huh. Sure. And that's just a really compelling way to live your life, right? It's not for everybody, but it it will motivate you to go and seek that next level, which has been really helpful for me in in, in a business perspective, at least. Yeah, iron sharpens iron. If you want to be happy, I think in some ways it helps to be the most motivated or the smartest person in the room. But if you want to be successful, I mean, in, in the traditional way that we define success here in the United States, then you definitely do not want to be the smartest or the most motivated person in the room. And, and that really leads into this hell yeah or no commentary, which I have a tendency to push back on, and but I vacillate 
I'm a little schizophrenic on this one because there are times where I think I need to block out time. I need to focus my efforts on certain things. I need to clear my calendar. But then there are moments where I respond to a blind email or I respond to a blind LinkedIn message and it leads to this, you know, world or connectivity that otherwise I would never know about, right? The serendipitous moments that can change your life in many ways. And I don't know what the right answer is. Where are you right now in that cycle of thinking? I'm probably close to where you are, Brian. I think the way I think about it is early in our careers, we should say yes to everything, man. Like invitations to happy hours, invitations to coffee, invitations to serve on a board of a nonprofit. I mean, especially if, if, if we don't yet have a spouse or children, we should just say yes, man, because who knows where serendipity will happen. But as we, I guess, get further along and start to have some measure of professional success or even establish some kind of reputation, uh, we, we may have more and more people reach out to us and ask us for time, ask us for coffee, ask us for phone calls. And we can drive ourselves crazy trying to please all of those people and, and, and give them that time. And, 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 you know, I'm not there yet. I don't have that much. I don't have that many people ask me for time yet, but I have friends and, and, and colleagues who certainly do. And, and I certainly have more than I'd had 10 years ago. I, I get more asks today than I did a decade ago. And, and where I am on that is um, this idea behind Hell Yeah or No came from Derek Sivers, who's a successful entrepreneur, started this business called CD Baby um, while he was in at the Berkeley College of Music. And he says that by Saying no to almost everything and just waiting for the hell yes, it makes room for more hell yes. Makes room for more hell yes. So if he's asked to speak at a conference in Australia, it might feel good to say yes today. But if he's lukewarm on it, he knows he's not going to be excited about it three months from now. Right? It needs to be a hell yeah. Because who knows what's uh, going to happen three months from now that you'd have to say no to. Yeah, I heard a similar sentiment. Hugh Jackman talked about this on Tim Ferriss's podcast recently about he has trouble saying no, right? But he uses the same technique where he puts himself in the future. And in six months, if he has said yes to go to some art festival and wherever, when he's on the plane or getting ready to leave his family, how's he going to feel about it? Yep. And that's kind of his, his uh, bright line rule. It takes discipline, though. I struggle with that. For sure. I mean, I can say, check this out. This is a real example. That was that was it was hard for me, and I, I it worked out for me, Brian. But 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 I could have gone another direction. I helped start and lead the business for eleven years here in Nashville, and I had every job there except for CEO. And and we grew, and and I'm really proud of what that business did. We created our own proprietary software and ended up licensing it. We didn't start out a tech company, but we evolved to become a tech company. The last three years, I was a CFO and head of HR. And I can tell you that was not the work I was created to do. I wasn't even particularly good at it, but I was somehow qualified or the most qualified person on the team to do that at the time. But I knew around that time when I started doing that job that what I really wanted to do was be a CEO, man. I really wanted that job um, and wanted to check that box and ultimately be held accountable for the rise or fall of a business. And as I thought about my next professional step, I had not overnight, but over a, a period of a few years, I had opportunities to do all kinds of things. That, that would probably would have been pretty good, frankly. There were good opportunities that I said no to. And in retrospect, that, that, I mean, that was really hard sometimes to say no to being a CEO of some business in Nashville that I thought was a pretty good business, but maybe not the right one for any host for a host of reasons. All, all that is to say that I ended up coming across this thing that I'm doing now, which is a, a, 
a partnership whereby we're buying majority stakes in dental practices and creating, um, I think, the best careers in dentistry on a foundation of exceptional culture. And when the stars aligned on that, it was like a hell yeah with every cell of my being, right? Whereas with the previous paths I was considering, I was maybe, you know, a six out of 10, a seven out of 10, maybe a 7.5 out of 10. And if I'd said yes to any of those, I would never have come across this thing, which was an 11 out of 10 for me. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. Which leads us into this next statement that I wanted to get into, this first sentence job versus second sentence job. And the way that I think about this is, again, I think it was Naval talked about how if somebody at a cocktail party asks you what you do, Mm. you can't really tell them in a succinct fashion if you say, well, I'm in real estate, but I do a lot of different things or, well, it's a little complicated. It means you have a specific skill which you can monetize. He said, that's a really positive thing. And that, that is what kind of triggered in my mind when I read this about kind of what you do versus what your contribution is. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that's great. I hadn't heard them all say that before, but, but it does rhyme with this idea of first, second, 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 second job, first sentence jobs and second sentence jobs. I heard about it from, from a colleague of my sister. And my sister, Jacqueline, is, was an early employee, is an early employee, I guess, was at Snap. Snapchat in Chicago, and everyone loves Jacqueline. You'd like her too. Uh, and, and she's got a big job there. And one of her colleagues, one of her favorite colleagues, a guy named Adam Ganjani, and he told me this that, you know, when someone asks you what you do for work, so often you might answer in two sentences. You might say, I work at X or Y, or I work at X at Y company, and I do Z for them. The first sentence answers, What do you do? And the second answer is, What is your contribution? And here's the insight. Early in a career, most people try to get the best first sentence job possible. When our peers are more junior, it's impressive to say we're a junior analyst at Goldman Sachs or an operations coordinator at Google. But later in our career, the second sentence is just more important. What's our contribution? Ideally, we have both. But but our second sentence, our contribution, is what makes a job a vocation. And having a second sentence that aligns with our gifts and strengths is, is how we'll thrive. And so our second, ma- our second sentence matters more. And I feel like not to date you, but now that we're getting older and I'm turning 40 next month, <laughs> increasingly trying to reconcile this concept that my identity is not my job necessarily, yep. but, I, but I do have a skill set that hopefully helps the enterprise and helps other people go out and start their own businesses. That's how I think about kind of my contribution to the firm. But I do feel like this entanglement with ego and status is very hard to push up against when you're in your 20s, especially as a, a white male, frankly. This is just the peerage that we, that we try to prove to each other, for sure. I think it's probably wired from an evolutionary perspective, right? To, to try to set yourself apart at the far right end of the bell curve in whatever the most obvious way is. And, and for some of us, that's becoming as fit as possible or, you know, running 
competitively and finishing races ahead of others. Whatever it is that we're sort of where we're channeling that, it's for so many of us, Brian, in our own peer circle, it's just trying to have as much professional success as possible. And the way we measure professional success, the best way to measure it, the most obvious way, is, is by associating ourselves with a prestigious brand early in our career. And not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just not always the right path for us to have a, an actual real impact and a rewarding career over time. Yeah, I mean, I'm just not sure how enduring it is. So this next one is funny. Charlie Martin's War is like one of my favorite movies. And, you know, famously, uh, this is at the end of the film, the story of the Chinese farmer, which is a Zen fable that we'll see, obviously applicable to many different scenarios, but one of my favorite parts of the whole movie, especially given everything that's happened, you know, since then. But I'm curious, like how you apply this in your everyday life, this fable. I mean, so it's, I, I, I'm glad you brought this one up because it's something I think about almost on a daily basis. If you're unfamiliar with the story of or the, the story of the Chinese farmer, which is a Zen fable, I mean, I encourage you to read it. It's really short. Google it. You'll find it. And I'm sure you'll find a link to it in the podcast notes. But, but the idea is that a blessing isn't always a blessing. A perceived blessing isn't always a blessing. Or a, a, perceived, or a perceived misfortune isn't always a misfortune. You can't really know until you get to the end of the story. And one example I talk about is that so often, I mean, people don't get a job they're really hoping for, or someone doesn't call them back, who they really wanted to get in touch with. Maybe it's a romantic interest, but, but, but maybe you dodged a bullet, man, without knowing it. <laughs> you know, Early in my career, I worked at a healthcare consulting firm. I remember right out of college, I went to Vandy, and then right out of Vandy, I was 22 years old, and they gave me a credit card and an apartment in whichever city I was assigned a project. I, I couldn't believe anyone would give me a corporate credit card, much less a corporate apartment. And we were at training and there were 12 new consultants, had two weeks of training at our headquarters in Portland, Oregon. And following training each day, we hung out in the lobby of the hotel and discussed rumored upcoming consulting projects because we'd be assigned a project that lasted upwards of a year, these are long-term projects. And so, you know, one was gonna be in New York City and the other was gonna be in Jackson, Mississippi. And all of us wanted to go to New York Nothing against Jackson, Mississippi. I don't think I've ever been to Jackson. I'm sure it's nice, but, but all of us wanted that corporate apartment in New York City. And we got our assignments. The four new consultants who were assigned a New York project were really excited because they got exactly what they wanted. But it didn't go as planned. Turns out the New York project sucked. It wasn't in New York City. The apartments were in Manhattan, but the work was two hours outside the city at a hospital system in Long Island. And the client was miserable. The hours were brutal. The commute was terrible. And three out of those four consultants assigned to that New York project quit within 12 months. And it's just funny because so often we think we know what we want for ourselves. And if it doesn't go that way, we're disappointed. But, but when I feel disappointment on a daily basis, I remind myself that um, it's not the end of the story. And who knows what, what's going to come next. And, and I can attest after being an entrepreneur for 11 years, my tax guy asked me the last time I got a W-2. And I think it was 2010. It's an adventure, man. I mean, yep. you and I have been grabbing coffee for a, about a decade now, and you just don't know where it's going to go ever. And I think the sooner you embrace that mentality, the better off you'll be mentally and uh, psychically for sure. I mean, Brian, I remember when I, I think if it's okay if I tell the story, if not edit it out, but I remember when you were like, like maybe considering getting a job at a law firm. Yeah, I was trying to I was trying to connect with your wife to pitch her on I can't remember what firm she was with at the time, but I was like desperate to talk to anybody at one of these big corporate firms, right? And 
I've got interesting code to the story, but go ahead. Well, I, I guess, I mean, it's just, I mean, you didn't end up, just for the sake of the audience, you didn't end up working at a corporate law firm. <laughs> no, no, I did not. But did not. To, to like circle it out, yeah, for a long time, I thought I was, I really wanted to work at a corporate law firm. Uh, I thought that was kind of the end all be all. It never I'm happened. Well, so I'm I'm going to the Kentucky Derby with our firm that's based out of Louisville because we were the biggest client in the entire firm last year, firm wide. There's nothing wrong with being an attorney, man. I have some of my really close friends and, and people I respect and admire are attorneys. It's just sometimes it can be a tough way to make a living billing in six minute increments. Um, well, and, and this goes to another point that I wanted to get into this quality time versus quantity time. One of the reasons I didn't end up doing it, one, I couldn't get a job anywhere. <laughs> two, <laughs> two, nobody wanted me to hire me. That's kind of an issue. But two, I remember sitting down with this partner, at prestigious Nashville firm. He was at the end of his career. I said, you know, like, what, what do you reflect upon your career? What do you think about? He said, you know, the thing I think about the most is the fact that the value I created for the enterprise was directly correlated by the amount of time I did not spend with people that I love. Mm. And I thought, whoa, that's some pretty deep stuff when you're 67 looking back on it, right? And, and that leads to this quality time versus quantity time issue that, that you get into. And this is something that we reflect upon a lot now that, or at least I do, that I'm getting older and my kids... I don't know what the stat is, but it's something like you'll spend 85% of all the time with your children before the age of 12 or something. And my oldest is nine. And it just crushes me when I hear things like that. Yeah. So this is a powerful idea for me. It really has changed my life to, to have, uh, you know, at least tried to embrace it and remember it. But the idea that at work, the quality of our time matters, but at home, the quantity of our time matters. And at work, I mean, unless you're billing in six minute increments and have to hold yourself accountable for that time, most managers and clients don't care how we get our work done as long as it's consistently high quality and ethical. So our professional time should be focused and intentional and high quality. But at home, man, the quantity of our time matters. Because here's why. If our goal is to create a home full of love, there's just no substitute for physical presence. Intimacy can't be scheduled and tenderness can't be planned. We can't make an appointment with our children to get them to share their real secret fears and dreams. And I mean, you try it with your wife. I, I can't put 30 minutes on my wife's calendar with an agenda and a stated objective of strengthening our marriage because our moods and emotions may not line up with the quality time we blocked off because people don't operate that way. So the idea here is, is for me, I, I, I remember, I try to remember to, to work really hard when I'm focused on, on, on all of my professional goals and, and try to channel that as efficiently as possible. So that I can make space for for the people that that are that are gonna you know that I'm gonna have relationships with hopefully for decades right inshallah God willing but 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 unless we do that that time slips away and and, and those moments of intimacy and tenderness really can't be scheduled they just pop up yeah I've got what I refer to in my head as the six p.m. rule mm. which is you know early in my career do happy hours drinks dinner I traveled a ton. And now that I'm fortunate enough to be where the company is, <laughs> to to for for me to have a business meeting after six o'clock, or for something that keeps me out of the house at six o'clock at night, it's got to be a hell yeah! Like it has yeah. to be a big time. And what I've realized is, 
Like nobody really cares where I am before 6 p.m. But after six, that's like a golden hour with my kids, right? We read books, we do homework, we watch sports together, we play outside, whatever it is. And so I've kind of, to your point, like my LPs don't care when I work, right? Or my colleagues don't really care necessarily. So I get up at four in the morning, I go to the gym early and I hit it hard and then I shut it down by five or 5.30. And that's a really big thing for me. And I I totally agree with you. Like these, these moments that you remember they happen at home, right? And I, I think that's super powerful. Your your role your role model, Brian. Was that we all? <laughs> I, mean, I mean that. I mean that. It's I don't worry about that. <laughs> no, no. That's I, that, I think. I think. Would that we all try to keep that perspective? Because um, it's easy to get distracted. And I, I, I mean, it's, it's almost like it's a cliche. It's trite. But but if you talk to anybody who's you know close to the end of their careers, they they, they almost without exception would say that they, if they have regrets, it's, it's, it's working too much or spending less time with the people that they love. Yeah. I mean, my dad, corporate attorney, his whole career, total grinder. He just retired formally January, 70 years old. And, uh, it's funny because now he's got all the time in the world. The dude calls me up all the time, yeah. texts me, wants to hang and I'm busy. And it's like pops, you know, where was this 20 years ago, man? Or, you know, I just, he was working. Right. And, it's unfair the way that our professional careers, you know, theoretically are on the ascent right when the kids need us the most, unfortunately. Yeah, and we're, we're in a really privileged position to be able to talk about work-life harmony. It's just a hard thing globally, right? I mean, I don't take for granted this, this notion that like, like I can do a lot of my work remotely and I'm at a stage in my career where my judgment matters a lot, right? Making a few good decisions matters a lot more. Than, than working 12 hours in a day. But that said, you know, I think for most of us, we, we hold on tight to this idea for too long that to be successful professionally, we, we have to be available to, to everyone all the time. And, and gosh, we just can't prioritize taking our kids to school and then showing up at the office at 8.30 instead of 7.30, right? And, and you know, I think that you can design your life. It's not easy. You can, but, but hey, take some thought. You can design your life in a way, hopefully, it, over time that allows you to to do those things and drop your kids off at school and you know maybe coach soccer too. Carve out time for that. And if you do that the right way, it's not so much a sacrifice or a zero sum game. It can be a, a virtuous cycle because you can be sharper when you're working. You can make better decisions because you have the confidence that comes with having a solid foundation of a loving home. And, and I don't know, um, I'm, I'm still relatively early in my career, but I believe that. Yeah. And I think it comes down to culture, right? And as the, uh, I'm not, I don't like titles, but as the person who ostensibly is running the show at my firm, I kind of dictate that, right? Like if I hang out at the office till eight or nine o'clock at night, people are going to feel like they need to do that in order to you know, work. If I am at the office in the morning asking where everybody is, people are going to think they need to be there super early in the morning. If I don't take vacation, nobody's going to feel comfortable taking vacation. And so, so I've you, heard, you do those things, it sounds like you, 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 you see yourself as like hopefully setting an example in this area. Totally. I, you know, when we've, we've, we've been lucky enough to grow recently. And when I onboard a new employee, I said, listen, take six weeks a year and, you know, 
I'm going to check into you once a quarter. And if, if you're not taking the time, I'm just going to make you take the time at the end of the year. Yep. Because I don't want to work with a bunch of burned out husks of people that are working in a salt mine. Like it's not interesting to me. I don't think it makes for better work environment. And I tell them I'm, I'm going to eat my own dog food here. So I'm going to take six weeks and I encourage you to, you know, make sure that, that you're doing it. And I, I think it's important that you set that from the top and, you know, Reed Hastings at Netflix is a big believer in this concept as well. He talks about it a lot. He takes some crazy trips, which is awesome. But I do think it definitely starts with you and, and how you interact every day. And you know, people are watching, even if you think, oh, well, like this is just who I am. This is what I want to do. People take their cues from you, right? And if you crank it out at eight or nine o'clock at night, they're going to feel obligated to do it with you. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my experience too, Brian, is that if you make it a priority to take six weeks, it forces you to create processes and redundancies and lay a foundation so that the business can run without you, man, which is what you want anyway. Yeah. The, uh, uh, I had a, a friend say, ask me in a, mm, not confrontational, but as a mentor, would your company pass the hit by the bus test? Mm. And like total no, <laughs> total no, complete no. But yeah. it does, it does make you think like, man, yeah, I could, I could do certain things though, that would enable us to pass that test. It would take some time and effort, but it's not impossible. And I think that goes back to our earlier conversation about ego and status and how wrapped up you are in the firm and, and what you do. Yeah. And a lot of people are really scared about passing that test, especially in professional services and financial services, for sure. Yeah, because so often in, in, in that line of work, the person is the brand. And it's really important, I think, if you're going to have something that sustains to, to build something that's bigger than yourself and, and, and where you don't need to be the guy. It takes some humility, I think. But those who are able to do it successfully are so much happier. So along those lines, we talked about our peer group and being hardwired. I know that I really struggle with the hedonic treadmill. Mm. Like once I get something nice, I just want something nicer and I become accustomed to living in the nice house or having the new car. And I have to really push back against this idea that I always need to up the high in many ways. Yeah. And that, I think, relates to this keeping up with the Joneses idea. I mean, you talk about everyone's life is harder than it looks. And it feels to me like that's just a better way to maybe approach life without driving yourself insane, especially if you are a self-diagnosed high achiever or type A person. Yeah. Yeah. Look, having nice stuff is nice. And, and having money is better than not having money. I've, I've, I've been really broke before. And I've also had some semblance of financial independence too. And, and having money is better than not having money, objectively. It's really hard to argue with that because money solves money problems. Doesn't solve all our problems. And there are plenty of problems that aren't money problems, but lots of problems are money problems and money can solve those. But the ultimate status symbol is free time. And we can design our lives to have free time or to build free time, even without a whole lot of like, even if our net worth isn't, Seven figures, even if it's not six figures, there are plenty of people who have designed their life so that they don't have to be anywhere. They don't have to wake up with an alarm clock, right? They're, they're creators. They don't punch a clock. And I think that 
so many of us get on that ketonic treadmill you described and, and find ourselves under a lot of pressure to, to show up all the time and, 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 and to constantly work and do things that maybe we weren't created to do just to keep that treadmill running. So I think early in our career, if we can remember that, that maybe our goal isn't to have a certain number in the bank account, but our goal is to be able to wake up without an alarm clock on our own terms, that's something that's better to shoot for. It's certainly something to aspire to. I'm not there yet, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think you look at afford to go work out because that's what you want to do, man. It's not because somebody's telling you you have to be there. And so it's the same thing. It's just, it's just, um, it's just this idea that you get to choose how you're going to spend your day. And so along those lines, this, you know, strings of yes concept that you have, you know, you talk about this, I almost think of it as a pyramid of like your mind, you know, your mental health, physical health, and then emotional health with your family and friends all aligning together. I really like that imagery because it's simple, but also evokes that foundational concept, right? Of, of three legs of the stool that you can stand on and go back to even when things go sideways or haywire in whatever <laughs> facet of your life, it might be going crazy at that time. Strings of Yes happens to be one of the only items on my list that I think is something I, well, I, I think I organized the idea in a way that might be original, but, but I, it came from this quote from GK Chesterton, the theologian and writer who said that you cannot grow a beard in a moment of passion. It takes commitment, right? You can shave a beard in a moment of passion, but growing one takes time. It's not a one-time decision. It requires saying yes over and over day after day. And, and, you know, we talk about how money can solve money problems, but, but, but there are other things that money can't buy. It can't buy a calm mind or a fit body or a home full of love. We can't have those one day just because we decide that we want them. Calm minds, fit bodies, and homes full of love require enduring commitment. Strings of yes, day after day. And, and, and we need to show up and say yes, even when we don't feel like it, if those are things that are important to us. Well, Ryan, we're pumping up against the hour here. If you'd be down for it, I'd love to do like a part two or three. We only got through a third of these things, but we went down some rabbit holes, but it's a ton of fun. And I think we'll be really well received by the audience. So if you're okay, maybe we can bookmark it. We'll do another one if you're down for it. Yeah, we can do it on the, I'm, I'm not a Friday afternoon before Easter then. Um, <laughs> maybe that'd be good. So I can go, you can go spend some time with your family. It's all good, man. Well, I want to thank you for the time. I mean, you and I have known each other for a while now, and I've really admired you going out and doing these blogs. It's something that I wish I had the courage to, to write because it is scary in many ways, but you do some really good content and it's really helpful for people. So if people are interested in learning more about the blog, just connecting with you in general, we'll link it all, but what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, ryanmccoslin.com, R-Y-A-N, McCoslin, M-C-C-O-S-T-L-I-N.com. Um, I put stuff up there almost every week. And if you sign up, uh, don't ever send any spam. It's one email a week, almost every Friday or Saturday morning. And they're always short and hopefully thoughtful. So thanks for, for, for in, inviting me. Ryan, I, we knew each other before we were married, before we had kids, all of that. And so it's been fun to watch your career grow and your family grow. And, and I'm, I'm proud of what you're doing too. So uh, thanks for making me a part of it. Yeah, man, absolutely. Well, I hope you have a great Easter with your family and uh, we'll be sure to be in touch and, and schedule a part two for this one. Happy Easter. Happy Easter.
Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.